Colossians chapter 3 and we're at verse 18. You know, some of these things sound, in a way, so mundane and simple. You know, here we are talking about, um, you know, the Christian household, you know, husbands, wives, children, slaves, and so on. Well, you know, we put that in the whole context of this letter. Uh, it, you know, takes on a different kind of significance, another kind of importance, uh, I think, to see where this little paragraph just fits in to the whole of this letter that Paul has written. And of course, as a reminder, he's written to a little, well, not, not a little city, but a little congregation within the city of Colossae. And uh, we've, we've gone over these things uh, several times. He began this letter by talking about the preeminence of Christ in all things, he says. And he says, we've, we've left the kingdom of darkness we have now been brought into a new kingdom of light, from darkness to light. Um, I have a commentary at home on the Gospel of John. They're titled it, uh, Light in the Darkness. You know, that's what the theme of Scripture is about, and we don't a lot of times think of it that way, that the world is in darkness, spiritual darkness, and we have been moved to a whole other realm of, of light. He tells us in this uh, in this letter, and here, in light of that, in view of that, they were facing problems from outsiders who were wanting to come in and bring with them the darkness of the world, their philosophies, their teachings, and hang it on with their Christianity, as it were. And you know, that's still happening today. It happens all the time in churches all over the world. You start off with this great, um, what do I say, great, great thunder, as that were, of their full-hearted devotion to Christ. And then over time, over time, things begin to change and things slip in. And somebody says, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a yoga class here at our church? Or, you know, whatever. Well, how about if we just brought a Quran in here and put it in a pew beside our Bible, you know, because, hey, you know, we all, we all worship the same God. Only we don't. Allah and Yahweh are not the same. So, Paul set forth with clarity, with the utmost of clarity, who Christ is, that he is the head of the body. And we are members of the body, and we don't want to forget that. And, you know, you, you know you, we've left the elemental spirits of the world, he tells us, and we have received Jesus Christ as our Lord. And now, he says, walk in him. It's a whole different lifestyle, a whole different change. It's a new world that we're facing because of what Christ has done for us. You know, salvation is not just a past event uh, in, in a person's life. The way people do evangelism today, 
you would think that was the case. Some people come around knocking on the door, say, hey, did you know you're a sinner? Here's some verses to read. Pray and receive Jesus as your Savior. Pray again. Shut the door. Go to the next house. And on and on. I, I, we know about that. Some of us here do. Been involved in it. Done it. As if that's all there is to being a Christian. Just get them out of hell. Get them going their way to heaven. And everything is hunky-dory. Christianity doesn't stop when we receive Christ. And really, quite frankly, when people are evangelized and we're telling them about the Lord, we ought to be telling them about more than just fire escape and getting out of hell. The early Christians, when they re related to them and concerning the world, they called them the way. I think it's about five times or so in the book of Acts. They're called the way. Because it was so different from the rest of the world. The rest of the world was not tuned in, as it were, to what was going on with Jesus. And why so many people were turning away from the popular religions and, how do we want to say, um, well, calling Jesus Lord, rejecting Lord Caesar, having a new Lord in their life, and, and people couldn't fathom that. And, and they, of course, looked upon Christianity as a sect, and they called this, these that were doing this, this the way. And so there was a whole new, a whole new element to this whole matter of being a Christian, being in the kingdom of his beloved son he tells us um, was a whole new thing and then you get over to chapter 3 and he says you have, when this happened you have been raised with Christ as he was resurrected from the dead so have you this new life to be gained uh, and because of that he says set your eyes on things above not on things of the earth there's a new way of looking at life. You know, when you were in the kingdom of darkness, there was only one direction you looked down. There wasn't anywhere else to look. But now that you have received Christ, he says, now you start looking up and seek the things that are above. And how do you do that? Put to death. Put to death, he said, certain elements of things that were corrupting the society that they were in, sexual immorality and speech. It was interesting to, you know, that Paul just focused on those two things, various areas of each one, but those, those two elements of our Christian walk. And these things, he said, need to change. And you gotta put on some godly attributes so you put off, you put to death, you put on. And you, you, you remember we mentioned that this thing about putting on was a word used for putting clothes on. So the element or thought there is when you put these things on, it's like you're getting dressed in things that are pleasing to Christ. 
things that reflect him. These things he says about uh, compassionate hearts and uh, heart, uh, kindness and humility, meekness and patience. He tells us there in, in chapter three, verse uh, 12, put these kinds of things on. And then he said, sort of like to top it all off, put on love on top of all that. And if you do that, you know, then you are reflecting Christ. You are showing him forth in your life. And then he, and he also tells us whether it's in word or deed, it doesn't matter. You do it this way. Now, having said all of that about the, the, the way that our Christian life ought to change, then he begins with the one place that it has to go to first. The number one place where this should be reflected, he says, is in the home, in the Christian home, or really, as you would say it in the first century, the Christian household, for the most part, because many, many were households. Um, you had mom and dad, you had kids, and then you had bond servants or slaves. And sometimes there were extended families. And so you, it was easier to talk about the household because if we say home, we tend to think about, you know, related family members. And it was a different kind of, a different kind of society then in the first century. Well, actually centuries before that and centuries after that. But we're talking specifically here about the time in which Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae. So we're going to look at some of those things that Paul said need to be present in the Christian home because this is where it starts. If you can't make it happen in the home, where else are you going to make it happen? You know, um, in the flesh, it's easier to do it backwards. It's easier to put on our Christian face when we come out in public like here than it is to do it at home. Home is where we seem to let our guard down and think, well, I don't really have to pay any attention to that stuff so much here. And then we slap off on our Christianity. And I say that because I know that every single one of you know what I'm talking about, including me. Say, you know, because that's the way we live. Paul says now it ought to be the other way around. And so really what I'm saying is, is if we want to <coughs> exemplify Christ, if we want to magnify him, if we want him to be Lord, if we're going to say that he is preeminent in our lives, then we ought to have an attitude of when I leave here and go home, this is how I need to change my attitude. This is how I need to start walking in Christ with love, with a compassionate heart, by being meek, kind, gentle, long-suffering, filled with joy and peace, the things that Paul mentions over you know, in Galatians 5, and then the things that he mentions here, humility. <laughs> humility in the home? Well, now isn't that a brave thought? But yet, that's where it begins. So again, he starts telling us about the various aspects of, of the uh, Christian life in the home. And, and you know, it, here, 
Paul mentions six classes of people in the, in the first century Christian household. And he mentions them two, two, two. You know, wives and husbands, fathers and children, masters and slaves. And, that, and, and not only that, but then, he, this is interesting, he mentions the subordinate person first, and then he mentions the person in authority second. <clears throat> the Christian home in the first century was probably pretty hard for you and I to relate to. We just, we just don't live our lives that way today. But he begins by talking about the wives. And this, are, these are no new, new verses to anybody. They're not strange to anyone. He tells the wives, right off the bat, no questions asked, wives, submit. Be in subjection. And the whole issue here is in the home is one of authority. There is a structure. And earlier in, um, I think it was in Ephesians, you know, Paul extended that a little farther. He didn't stop with the husband. He says that you also have a head who is Christ. So he didn't stop here as he has here with the church at Colossae with the husband. It goes and extends even beyond that. And if we learn to submit to Christ and allow him to be the head, then everything else really will fall into place. So this matter of subjection, it's just purely a relationship thing. Somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to have the final word. Somewhere along the line. And if that's to happen, then somebody has to be in subjection. And so Paul begins here by talking about the wife being in subjection. Has nothing whatsoever whatsoever, 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 of being inferior in any way. It's purely a relational thing and nothing more than that. And he tells them to be submissive or in subjection as is fitting in the Lord. Now, the verb tense here in this word fitting uh, <clears throat> points us to this arrangement of subjectivity all the way back to where? Adam and Eve. This is no new thing. This is centuries old. So when Paul's, and, and the tense of the verb implies that, that if this thing is goes way, way back, it's nothing new. So it shouldn't be shocking to us to, that, you know, this is, New, at least to us, now might have been new to the church at Colossae. There might have been quite a few Gentiles who maybe were not aware of this whole idea. And so Paul has to tell them about that. As is fitting in the Lord. And over in, in Ephesians, which, you know, it's hard not to keep turning back to Ephesians because Ephesians is the longer letter and it tells us a little bit more. Uh, in almost every case about each one of these relationships. So I may reference them once in a while, but I'm trying to avoid going back to Ephesians all the time. But uh, over in Ephesians, as I said, Paul relates that to 
uh, being in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is our head. Well, how does he turn that thing on its head then, so to speak, no pun intended? He says, husbands, love your wives. He doesn't, he doesn't tell them, husbands, treat your wives as a subject, as somebody who's in subjection to you. Now that's the way a good many people look at it. But that's not what he says. He said, husbands, love your wives. And I think we're all familiar that the whole idea of love here is that highest word that it's in the Greek language for love, agape, agapao. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of love that um, it, it does away, it has nothing to do with natural affection. It has nothing to do with welling up feeling or this beating of your heart towards your, your wife or your husband. In this case, the wife, of course. It has, it has to do with, again, position. And in this position of subjection, the way you balance that out is for the husband to love the wife and display it. It's that kind of love that looks out for the betterment of the other person. As we, I think we're, you know, well aware of that. It looks out for the welfare of the other person. And he tells them, don't be harsh with them. Or bitter, I think it is the King James says. Um, don't cause them to be irritated. Um, this, this word harsh, as the ESV translates it, or the word bitter, as the King James has it, if you, you know, it's not a real common word, but if you look in Revelation, the book of Revelation, I, let's see, where was it? Chapter, chapter 8, verse 11. There he talks about um, this uh, same word, bitter water. Water that has an acrid taste to it. You know, you, it, you just, you can't stomach it, as it were. Oh, <laughs> By the way, if you look over to chapter 10, verse 9, he says it leaves a bitter taste in the stomach. And so this gives us an idea then of what Paul's talking about when he says don't be bitter against your spouse, against your wife. And treat them that way. In other words, don't agitate and stir up bitterness in them. Don't you become bitter. In doing so. Then he deals with the children. Oh, children. Oh, man. Do we love that verse? Young families. Children, obey your parents. Wow. The word obey. If you look over in Acts chapter 12, verse 13, we don't really have time to look there, but you know the story really well. Remember, Peter was in prison, and he gets out, and he goes to the home of John Mark, and he knocks on the door, and guess who comes to the door? Rhoda. Well, that's what the idea of obey came out of that, is when somebody knocks, you, you go and answer the door. You don't just sit there and let them keep knocking. You answer the door. Well, then obedience 
the whole idea came out of that idea that you don't just sit there, you get up and you go answer the door, you do something. So this whole thing about children obeying parents um, is, is, is a, you know, it's a simple thing. And Paul only, he doesn't go into some extended long thing about explaining about kids and obeying. He says only this because it pleases the Lord. Now that's a hard one for me to, you know, give an exposition on. What do you say about pleasing the Lord? The only thing I could think of really was, well, you really ought to stop and ask yourself, well, do I want to do something that I know dis displeases the Lord? And I'm, am I willing to suffer the consequences of it? Or do I please the Lord by being obedient and I take the consequences of that? Well, I'd say that's a whole lot better, being obedient. But then that holds true for all of us. That principle applies to us as well, adults, obedience, to please the Lord in all things, in whatever we do. Matter of fact, we're back to that thing about in, in uh, the previous section that we had last week, in word and in deed. Everything, word and deed covers everything in life. And as a matter of fact, the two examples we had over here earlier in chapter 3 about sexual immorality, that's deed, and about our speech, that's in word. These two things cover all of life. If we have those in control, you're a long way down the path to walking in a manner that is pleasing to God and how he can favor you and bless you. Then he turns on the fathers. Fathers in relationship to, now this by the way is, in a, technically it's kind of a generic word. It can be parents, mom and dad. And I think most of us know that mom and dad carry the authority over children. They are to be in subjection to them. So fathers here though is, I think that's it's probably correct to just say fathers because they carry the final authority because they are over the spouse, their wives. So dad carries the final word. He better carry the final word anyway. If there's a spouse, a wife that doesn't let dad have the final word, then you've got problems in the home. And he tells them, don't provoke them. Don't arouse your children. And this word, as it's used in other contexts, almost always has the idea of negativity. In other words, don't arouse them with negative feelings. Don't, that's why the word is translated provoke. Don't provoke your children, he says, to wrath or to anger or to be in constant irritant to your children because you're hounding them. Do this and do that and don't watch this and don't be reading this and you know we find that there are things like that that we can't escape instructing our children in the way of life as a believer takes a lot of work and you do the best you can the absolute best you can 
and they still have a will and they still choose ultimately at some point in life to go their own way your job is to get them to be up to an adult which of course in our culture everybody says is 18 that'll work <laughs> let me tell you something we all know i think from experience that raising kids beyond the age of 18 it, you know it still happens and it needs to happen some more than others uh some develop you know a, a, a mature attitude and a mature spirit spirit rather early in life i hate i hate to bring up people's names but you know anna's one of those you look at the most 12 year old she's a little we, we tell about her that we told her she's she's a little bit she's above and beyond most now come on boom what are you hiding from there i'm not going to call your name out <laughs> <laughs> poor guy <laughs> okay what happens if you do those things to your children then he says they become discouraged now the word discouraged there is probably i i think not a, quite a strong enough word in, in the esv here uh, because the literal meaning of that word means they're lacking in passion or lacking in spirit and i think most of us can recognize a child who has been beaten down to where they don't have any spirit about them anymore there's no rocket science there paul's instructions to us are you know you better not do that you better beware of what you're doing in the way you treat your children then he moves on to bond slaves bond slaves or sometimes just slaves now one of the things I like about the ESV is they translate this word in different ways according to the context. And I think, you know, of course, this has been years ago when we did an entire series uh, on the use of the word slave. And, and, and I think you're doing it too, right? Or you did? You mean, yeah, have. Okay. So what, what's the distinction here? Well, in the first century, <clears throat> there were people who were considered more like a bond servant. They weren't a slave in the typical sense in that um, they, they held jobs like you might have uh, a nurse or a doctor or a teacher or whatever in your home that was a part of your household. And then in other contexts, you might have had somebody who was a slave. Now, a bondservant could possibly be um, an heir. Even though they were legally born children of mom and dad, there could possibly be an inheritance for them. With a slave, there was no inheritance. And that's really kind of the distinction here. So I think bondservants is probably a good, good word to use in this uh, context here. And he... When he says obey bond servants, you notice they're no different than a child. You just do what the master of the house dictates. Now Paul really, what he's doing here is dealing with the attitude of those 
who are to be in subjection to their master. You know, it's really easy to, in a certain sense to make an application of this to today because all of us have uh, situations, all of us have uh, social uh, constructs or situations where somebody needs to be an authority. Somebody else needs to be in subjection. Of course, the most common place for that is the employer-employee relationship. And so this whole thing about attitude, about what you devote yourself to. I like what, uh, and I've mentioned, I think, this guy's name before, N.T. Wright. He, he made a statement like this. He says uh, concerning bond servants and the, their call to obedience. He said the task may seem or, or appear trivial, but the person doing it is not. I thought that was probably a cool statement. The task might seem menial. So your, your, your master, you know, wants you to, you know, you may be um, a teacher in the household or you might have been a doctor or a lawyer and you were owned by this guy and then he sends you out to pick up the trash. And your call was to obedience. The task, he said, might seem trivial, but not the person. And here's, and, and we're, Paul's going to explain why. Um, this whole relationship thing, you know, when you stop and think about it now, you know, he's writing this letter to the church at Colossae. I, I just try to envision in my mind this assembly in this little building or room or wherever, you know, wherever they were able to meet. And in that assembly, there was the master, there was mom, there was the kids, and then there was the slave or the bond servant. In that context, Paul says, you remember there's neither slave nor free. They were on equal ground. But guess what happened when they went back home? There was a little adjustment had to be made. Now they were in subjection to their master. You can imagine how tough life had to be. And I wish we had time to go over and look and maybe later when we if we complete Colossians, Colossians, we might go over to Philemon. <laughs> and uh, you remember the situation with Onesimus. Uh, and there's some really practical, instructive things that Paul uh, expressed when he wrote to um, Onesimus' master about how he ought to receive him back, even though he had run away and took off. And of course, can you imagine if that happened in a non-Christian setting? Could you imagine if that slave got caught and he was hauled back to that master's house? It would not have been a pretty sight in all likelihood because they could treat them any old way they wanted to. So being a Christian change, changes everything. And especially if everybody in the house that Paul's talking about here, if they all become believers. And we know that happened frequently. You remember that happened back in Acts chapter 16? The whole household was saved. 
But it didn't happen always, just like it doesn't happen here. It's a hard thing when either the mom or the dad becomes a believer and the other one doesn't. That's a conflict. Or what if the children rebel? Mom and dad are solid Bible-believing Christians, but kids, mm, they just don't get it. Too much influence from the world or school or whatever, and they, they, they don't follow. It's nothing easy about it. Well, he tells them here then that they're not, you know, this obedience has to come from a genuine heart of sincerity. And he, he, he explains that by saying, you don't do it with eye service. You don't just look good when the master's around and do what's pleasing to him when you know you're being watched. And as soon as he leaves the room, you know, it's just like we were talking about earlier. When you go leave here and go home, I can let my guard down now. I don't have to do quite as good of a job of picking up the trash as I was told to do because he's not looking. Well, the whole idea here is, is that there is somebody looking and his name is Jesus. And he says, you are in subjection, not just to your master, you are in subjection to your Lord, to Jesus Christ. And why is that important? Well, we're jumping ahead just a little bit, but he says, because there's a reward. There is a reward. It's out there in the future, but it's a reward. But before we get there, he says, do it in sincerity of heart, which the opposite would mean, don't do it hypocritically with hypocrisy or with pretense. Now, he, he, he kind of capstones that with fearing the Lord. Having a proper fear of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is, he is over us. Now, in, in verse 23, this is why these, this, these hymns became important again, is because he says, work heartily. Work heartily. That word heartily, it means work out of soul. That's the literal reference there. Work out of soul. You're to put your whole soul into serving your master. And then ultimately serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We happen to discuss frequently in our Bible study this whole idea of, of uh, spirit, soul, and body. You know, Paul's not saying work heartily out of your body. And he didn't say work heartily out of your spirit, but out of your soul. So what happened when God formed man in the dust of the ground and he breathed into him that breath of life and man became a living soul, a living, breathing person. And Paul is telling him here, you work out of soul with everything that God has given you in life as a gift, do it. And he says you do it as for the Lord and not for men. So the point of it then is who we labor for 
makes all the difference in the world. Knowing, knowing. Man, somehow he's telling them, you already know this. Epaphras had diligently taught them these very things that Paul's now writing back to them about. You know this, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. <sighs> inheritance? For a slave? You've got to be kidding me. But it was real. It was real because they would receive an inheritance from the Lord because they weren't children of the masters, but they were children of God. Remember Romans 8, 16? If we're, uh, if we're children of God, then we're heirs. Automatically. And because the slave here had received Christ as his Savior, he became a child of God. Now he was an heir. And then, not only that, he became an heir of Jesus Christ, a co-heir with him, if he was willing to suffer with it. Wait, can you, for the life of me, can you just imagine what that did in the heart of a, of a slave to realize that if I'm willing to sacrifice now, oh, what's in store for me in the future? It's the same thing for you and I. Look what's there for us if we are willing, if we will suffer with Christ, knowing that we are an heir of his simply because we were his child. And he says, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Christ, he says. That's your, that's not, you know, you may have an earthly master, but this is your ultimate master. This is your ultimate Lord. And his, his name is Jesus. And he concludes that in, in verse 25 by saying, you know, don't you realize the wrongdoer will be paid back? for what he's done. Now the implication of course there is towards the master. If the master has done wrong and treated you ill, you know, you need to understand that he's gonna get paid back for that. You're gonna get paid back if you obey your master and you do what he says, then you're gonna get the reward of the inheritance. If he doesn't do right, he's gonna get paid back. Of course, if he's a good master and he treats his, his, his slaves the way he's supposed to, righteously, well, as a matter of fact, if you go into chapter 4 and verse 1, he tells them there then the next thing is, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. And the word fairly, you know what that really, word really is? It just means treat them as an equal. Now, it didn't do away... With the, with the master-slave relationship, it was still there, but he said, treat them as an equal. Fairly and justly. Because he says there's, you know, there's no partiality with God. And I think you've heard me mention this before. I, I was enamored with this phrase. Um, this, of no, you know, when he says, treat them without partiality, or the King James says respect of persons. It means don't regard, God doesn't regard the face. That's what it literally means. 
when you walk in the door, God doesn't say, oh, so-and-so's here. Or in the master-slave relationship, God doesn't say, oh, the master's here. You know, I have to respect him and because he's in a... No, none of that applies. God treats them as an equal with no partiality. He doesn't have any... Re you know, it's the whole idea. You know, if Moses shows up, if King David shows up, and you show up, and you're all going to be judged, you're all on equal ground. Nobody has any superiority over you. Because he, and this, I'm telling you, even in the Old Testament, the word means exactly the same thing. He doesn't have any regard to a person's face. He doesn't show partiality in any way. And that's why he tells them, be, you know, treat them justly uh, and, and fairly. And by the way, he again, if you notice that, he says, um, knowing, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Hey, the whole household got taught about these things. Everybody knew because they all went to church together. Epaphras taught all of them. And the masters, he says, you know that you have a master in heaven and you're going to answer to him. So this whole idea, you know, uh, Chris, uh, you know, in, in concluding this, Paul's emphasis is Christian living begins in the home. That's where it starts. It doesn't start by, you know, you get saved on Sunday and Monday morning I go into work and I start telling everybody how I got saved and I became a Christian. You know, it starts when you left church that morning and you went home and you changed the way you were living, the way you spoke the way you talk, the way you treat individual family members. That's where it all begins. And if we don't let it begin there, then you have to ask yourself, well, where will I let it begin? Am I just gonna show my Christianity when I'm out in public? Paul starts in the four walls of our homes. This is where Christian living begins. Let's pray. Father, we, we look to heaven because we have no other place that we can look and no other place that we want to look. Our desire is to worship the living God, the God of truth and justice and equity, the God of humility and meekness and kindness, who treats us gently and with long-suffering, patience. All of these things, Lord, that we don't find in other places. There's no other place to go. And so we're, we bow our knee with joy and, and gratitude to know that we, we, we worship the God who loves us and cares about us beyond anything that we can believe or imagine. Lord, strengthen and comfort our hearts in all these matters because we know, we know that there is an inheritance awaiting us and that Jesus wants us to reign with him in his coming kingdom. Lord, let us live in such a way that he can receive us in that kingdom with joy and gladness and take us to his side. 
let us rule with him over this earth. Lord, what a prospect. What a joy we look forward to. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.